here's the thing. Most employment contracts for major studios and networks, and I've seen the ones for Warner Brothers, I've seen the one at Fox, I've seen one at Paramount, uh, forbid their employees from taking money from actors, uh, from making, doing, having a side business uh, from actors. I mean, you can't have a garage sale and take a, a dollar from an actor. Inside Acting, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the inner and outer game of success in the entertainment industry. I'm Trevor Algott, and coming up in episode 233, we bring you part two of our updated chat with casting director and outspoken pay-to-play workshop critic, Billy Demota. And in part two, we talk all about guidelines, creating, revising, and even dismissing the rules that have attempted to manage how casting director workshops have been marketed, run, and attended throughout the past decade or two. Stick around. Support for this episode of Inside Acting comes from VO2GoGo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best Voiceover Training four years in a row. Visit VO2GoGo.com slash start for a free getting started in voiceover online class that'll help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's VO, the number two, GoGo.com slash start. All right. Hey, everybody. Trev here. AJ and I uh, couldn't get our schedules to quite line up this week, so we're recording this separately. But he did record a few little updates and snippets to send in. So I want to play this for you in just a moment. Uh, But welcome to episode 232, part two of our chat with Billy Demota. So before we get to the update, um, AJ sent in a disclaimer about this, and I just want to kind of put this out there as well. I think maybe our marketing uh, of this interview series, starting with last episode, may have been a little bit misleading to people because when we put it out there to the world, uh, we got uh, more than a few messages back sort of not really criticizing us, but inviting us to take a more balanced approach uh, at looking at uh, at the issue um, of pay-to-play casting director workshops and, and, and not painting them in such a sort of um, evil light, uh, which was interesting to me because I don't know if the people that <laughs> I don't know if the people that sent those in uh, actually had listened to the episode. That's why I say the marketing may have been misleading because the episode we mentioned, you know, pretty clearly that that this is definitely only one side of the conversation. That we're very interested in in providing a comprehensive overview of the entire argument, all vantage points. And you know, AJ did reach out to, to Scott David, uh, as he'll mention in just a moment, and uh, Scott David declined. We we wanted to give him an opportunity, but we've also been in touch with more than a handful of actors and uh, various people from the industry who would like to come on and and voice their uh, differing um, experience of cast director workshops because they're not they're not all bad news evil taking advantage of actors I mean it may sound like that based on these interviews and that's certainly the 
um, the opinion of of Billy. But I, I have to say, just personally, Trevor speaking here, that uh, as much as I am not really a fan of them, I just don't like them. I feel icky going to them. I haven't done one for a long, long time. I have to say that almost every actor I know who is working consistently does attend cast and director workshops pretty regularly. They use them as a relationship building tool and they actually do seem to get work from them. Now, I, there's other things that they are doing right. They're not just relying on getting in front of a casting director and then just leaving it at that. There's, there's a whole other sort of strategy that goes along with it. But uh, I, I will say that, in my experience, it's a thing that uh, people have been able to parlay into work and career advancement. So there's that. So we're going to be talking a lot about this stuff uh, on upcoming episodes. But before we get into all that, I want to give uh, AJ the mic here to offer his uh, thoughts on this disclaimer as well. We're not I- ignoring one side of this issue. Number one, number two, uh, and I'm sure Trevor will Trevor will speak about this as well. We're going after people who are pro workshop, and we've got uh, some some guests who are forthcoming who are going to speak about that side of the issue. Obviously, it's a very hot issue right now, and I think it needs to be addressed. So I didn't want anyone to think that we were you know, being one-sided about it. Okay. So a little bit of beating a dead horse here, (laughs) but, um, we just want you guys to know that we, uh, you know, our, our goal has always been just to demystify the, the journey, the inner and the outer game, demystifying it, just trying to make sense of all the different paths that there can be into uh, a, a successful career. So, um, yeah, man, stay tuned and uh, our bad for perhaps marketing uh, this interview series as sort of the definitive word on on this. Uh, Certainly not our intention. So uh, looking forward to continuing this discussion. Uh, As far as updates go, you know, nothing that I'd like to share at the moment, but I know AJ's got some some interesting stuff. So uh, back to you, AJ. Uh, the Tony, Tony nominations came out this morning, and uh, I know a lot of people have been joking about them being called the Hamilton Awards this year, but uh, Hamilton did break the record with 16 nominations. Uh, it's insane. They're nominated in every friggin' category possible for musical theater, and in some of the categories there are multiple nominations, so... Uh, the featured actor in a musical, for instance, there's three people, three nominated in one category. It's absolutely insane. But congratulations to that cast and creative team. And uh, also just a quick shout out to uh, the cast and creative team of Waitress the Musical, which opened uh, this past week. I posted about it on uh, my Facebook account. But uh, I have friends in that show, uh, several friends, actually, and uh, went to school with Sarah Barella, So pretty uh, proud moment to see those friends open another another show there and as far as my relationship or my opportunity with Hamilton goes um, had a really interesting conversation I guess you would say with my representation because they wanted to give me some notes on the tape before I redo it and resubmit it and uh, you know it, it, it's just there's this interesting back and forth and I, I got a great explanation from it actually from my manager the 
people who are our representation aren't always, I mean, what's cool is a lot of casting directors, even a lot of agents are former actors. And so it helps because they can speak actorese, if you will. But there's this thing that happens where they are mostly focused, especially if they are just a manager, meaning they never had that artistic experience before, or just a lawyer, uh, meaning they're focused on the business side of things, um, or just an agent, meaning they're focused on the business side of things. There's this thing that happens where they tend to see things black and white, or maybe even you might say a little bit more left-brained. Whereas as an artist, I'm thinking of it from a right brain perspective. And so to bridge that gap is not always easy. And I, I don't know why I've never thought of it that way, but my manager sent me this email and it just kind of blew my mind. She was like, look, I'm a, I'm a businesswoman, so I see it much more black and white. I need you to tell me from your artistic side of things, what you need or what you do and don't agree with. You know, she said, I, I can tell when something resonates with me, but I don't necessarily know what, you know, adjustments need to be made or what have you. So I'm getting these notes from my agents and they're saying, you know, we need X, Y, and Z. And I'm going, huh? What? So I actually had to get on the phone with them. I was on the phone with them for like 40 minutes, just kind of clarifying things and really feel like we've gotten to a place where um, I know how to move forward with the um, with the tape. So anyway, just an interesting perspective. Wanted to know if anyone else had ever run into something similar in a conversation with their representation, um, other actors out there, uh, other artists out there. And also to empower you know the actors listening to this because i know that's a big thing of what we do here on the podcast to just know that you know sometimes the perspective is different and you didn't do anything wrong or bad necessarily but maybe you just had a different take artistically than someone whose job it is to be on the sort of the business end of things but i know a lot of you are out there rooting for me and i really appreciate that so i will continue to update people on this process as we go along i really feel like with my <laughs> multi-ethnicity that we've talked about on the podcast before my sensibilities my vote my voice my you know God, rapping skills, uh, if you want to call it that, um, which uh, I didn't necessarily knew that I had. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I knew I could do it, but um, to be put into a position where I actually have to audition with that uh, is something that's new to me. Uh, I really feel like with all of those things combined, I, I have a good shot at this. So I will obviously keep everyone updated on that. Ah, the age-old tumultuous marriage between art and commerce, art and business, and hip-hop free-flowing skills on the mic, apparently. <laughs> Congratulations, dude. You know, AJ gave me a little bit more context than he gave here. I, I just We were talking earlier in the week, and he was telling me sort of some of the feedback he was getting on his taped uh, audition and some of the conversations he was having and sort of where he felt there was some headbutting happening uh, between his viewpoint and the viewpoint of, of other people who are, like he said, a, a little bit more left-brained. It's such an interesting thing. It's something that we always uh, will be navigating and managing, I think, as, as our careers go on. I know that anytime I feel, <laughs> maybe you guys can relate to this, anytime I feel challenged artistically by some business sense uh, of some kind, I, I get like so, I get, <laughs> I 
get so worked up. I take it so personally. I'm like, if you if you knew what I knew, if you saw the footage I've seen, if you if you had been through the thought processes and the character creation process that I have been, you wouldn't be asking that stupid question. You know, like I get that way, and I always get to just kind of pull back and go, Trev, Trev. Settle down. We all have our biases. We all have our filters. Um, What if they had your best interest at heart? What if that was actually what was happening here? What if it wasn't an attack? How about that? So um, excited to hear how that continues to unfold, AJ, on, on lots of different fronts. Really excited. And again, congratulations. It's so cool. And I'm speaking directly to AJ now. It is so cool to see your career develop as you get more specific and more... Um, familiar with, or or you more deeply entrenched with with your essence, with, with who you are, and not only what you bring to the table, but also you know merging that with what people perceive uh, you to offer. Because I think that's when we have the ultimate success. We really take off in our artistic careers when we figure out where that sweet spot is between who we feel we are and what we can offer the world, and then what other people see and expect from us. When we can find that that sliver of overlap, and then just capitalize on that and, and sh- shoot forward with that. I think that's when things really start to to take off. Uh, I know a lot of, of artists out there who are multidisciplinary artists who when you talk to them, they're nothing like their on-screen personas, no matter how many characters they've played, but they figured out where that narrow, you know, like I said, sliver is that is their type, you know, and type doesn't necessarily mean how they see themselves. It means how other people just consistently see them. And that's that's what all that's what type is. Preaching to the choir here. All right. Well, uh, that's about it for part one of this show, this episode. So why don't we jump into our uh, chat with Billy DeMota? Like I said earlier, this is all about talking about the workshop guidelines. And this is so interesting to me that there were never really any rules or laws. There were just guidelines. It was sort of like, hey, we would really appreciate it if you guys would do such and such. But, you know, if you don't, then oh well. So it's it's a really interesting dilemma. Um, and uh, I wasn't aware of half of the half of the sort of things about this. And I wasn't aware that these were just, you know, mere loose guidelines to be followed as opposed to enforceable or, I guess, uh, consistently enforced rules. So, interesting context here going forward as this conversation continues. So, enjoy part two, guys, and we'll see you on the other side. seen this before we've seen the the hubbub happen before trevor and and i just mentioned it tends to to come up uh from time to time and every single time so far for as you said the last 30 years things kind of go right back to the way that they were eventually after everything calms down and it goes back to being exactly the same. So I'm wondering, in addition to social media and actors being both more informed and more vocal or more uh, coalesced, 
what what else do you see as being different this time around? Like, w- w- do you think that there's a chance that that things might actually start to stick this time? And if so, why? What what is what is different about this time than every other time that this has happened in the past? Uh, yeah, I do think it's going to stick a little bit more. I'm not sure how strong uh, the the, uh, the 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 message will get across to the people that, and it will stick with those people, but. Here's, here's a big deal. The big deal now is that if, in fact, uh, people are getting dismissed from their high-profile TV casting jobs, uh, if they're concerned about it. For instance, do you, do, you, do you know the story of Greg Orson, right? Greg Orson was in Atlanta planning to do a, I think there are four or six workshops, $195 a piece for a three-hour workshop, uh, using the Vampire Diaries as you know, where the workshop was using it. Vampire Diary casting director coming to Atlanta where they shoot the Vampire Diaries. And uh, and he canceled all of his workshops a couple of days after the, the article came out. Um, is it because of, of the, he said that he said there was a, a death in the family, but again, convenient timing, uh, when people are concerned about their livelihood, and they know that they're taking to, going to be taken to task for it by the people that pay them, the producers and the directors, the production companies and the studios and the networks. Are they going to take a chance to go out and use the, use the show's names and use the studio and networks uh, named in order to, um, you know, in order to, 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 make a, to make a couple of bucks in Atlanta? Here's the thing. Most employment contracts for major studios and networks, and I've seen the ones from Warner Brothers, I've seen the one at Fox, I've seen one at Paramount, uh, forbid their employees from taking money from actors, uh, from making, doing, having a side business uh, from actors. I mean, you can't have a garage sale and take a, a dollar from an actor because the, the inherent conflict of interest, the, the, even the perception of impropriety is much too great. And I'll tell you, the production company would rather just say no to Joe Casting or Jill Casting uh, from, from taking money or doing workshops than to have their, you know, their name in the press somewhere. The, you know, they don't want that to happen. They, they, so um, human resources departments, legal departments of the studios and networks, I can tell you for a fact right now because uh, I've actually spoken to a few, are looking at the, the, the whole situation, are concerned about it. Some people don't even know that the, the, the whole thing exists. And some are surprised when I say, like, for instance, I called Warner Brothers uh, a few years ago about this. And I said, why, uh, what's your policy on your, your casting employees taking money from actors in classes or workshops or, you know, or seminars? Well, they don't do that. We don't allow that. No, they do it. I just want to know what your policy is. And so <laughs> I, sent over, I sent over a bunch of stuff, flyers and emails and websites and they freaked out, and Warner Brothers put out a specific notice to their casting employees. I think actually to all employees that said, "You will not take any money from actors. You know, you won't do workshops." I mean, I forget exactly how they. I have it written down somewhere. I have a, the, the actual memo the, because a friend of mine who was casting Warner Brothers said, "You know, you're making, you're shaking up the trees. You're shaking the trees at the uh, at the, the the human resources level." You so it stopped at Warner Brothers. The Warner Brothers casting directors who were you know, involved with, you know, big TV shows, the big John Wells shows, and had to stop doing them. Um, some weren't doing them, most were, 
Uh, but the reason they, they were stopped is because the studio policy said you can't do them anymore. So I think what's happening in this case right now is that the studios are paying more attention. The networks are paying more attention. Touchtone Television, CBS, uh, NBC, uh, Disney. Uh, I know Disney is looking at Disney and, um, uh, you know, and Nickelodeon, both the kids' channels are looking at them. Because of the Krikorian Act that came out in 2000. Nine, you know, has not really been enforced a lot. Uh, in the beginning of this year, the, uh, the city attorney, Mike Fuhr, along with uh, uh, bizparents.org, a, a, a very prominent ch- uh, child advocacy group, um, Screen Actors Guild, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, the legal counsel for, this, for SAG-AFTRA, um, Paul Krikorian, they're all in a press conference. I And they invited me uh, as a representative for the anti-workshop movement, I guess you would call it. Um, and um, it's actually the, the pro-actors' uh, rights movement. And, uh, and so they made a, a promise that they were going to investigate, that they were going uh, to prosecute, if they could, uh, any, uh, any of the, the talent services that were violating the law. So I, I'm not sure what they're doing or if they're even doing it or if they've gotten more money to, to, to for you know, enforcement, investigation, prosecution. But I can tell you it's a priority for the city attorney's office now, too. So this thing that comes out in the press and the, the, the Hollywood Reporter uh, only, you know, adds, gives, gives those legal uh, people the support they need to go after the, the, the crimes that they see being committed. And, and so I think that that's a big deal. I'm not as encouraged by... Uh, the CSA, I don't know if you saw their statement. I'm a member of the CSA, and I've been a member of the CSA since uh, 1992 for 24 years now. I've been a casting director for 32 years. And when you talk about how things go back to the way they were, they don't really stick. They don't really, you know, something happens, there's a big splash, and then it all kind of goes back to the way it was. Um, the CSA, you know... I'm, I don't want to speak poorly because they're my organization and I'm proud to be a member and I'm you know, hugely privileged to be a member and a, and, a, and a member of the casting community in Los Angeles. But I think they've got their eye on the wrong sites. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, the statement they came up with was, um, and I, let me just read it here if I can, from the press release that came out a few days ago. CSA casting directors and associates are among the industry's foremost authorities on the alchemic aspects of casting and acting, whatever the freak that means. Um, But then they say it's an expertise which they generously share in various educational settings. I don't know how generous they are when they take $300, but that's another, you know, it's a stickle core for me. For me, I think that if you want to generously share, you, you give back to the people that are the reason you have a job. Um, now, I'm not saying that they're not on the right track with creating a committee, but their committee, the workshop committee, uh, it, here's what their, their mission statement is. This newly established committee, workshop committee, intends to ensure that all CSA members fully understand and abide by the workshop guidelines whenever they happen to teach. We have begun, we have begun to explore the creation of new officially sanctioned CSA programs to broaden access to casting education while upholding the highest standards of integrity and professionalism. Here's the problem. 
is they're um, is they're looking at the wrong thing. They're instead of addressing the ethical, professional uh, nature of the workshops and, or the lack of ethics, they're looking at it as well. Let's just you know make sure that we're make sure the education is correct when. Everybody knows from the very uh, outset that people aren't going to workshops to learn how to demystify the casting process. They're not doing it. What they're doing is they're going to meet Muffy or Buffy so Muffy or Buffy can put the picture and resume on the casting director's desk and for, for consideration for a job. Now, that having been said, even the guidelines that we have in place right now, we have nine workshop guidelines. I don't know if you have access to those, and I'm certainly happy to send them to you if you want to post them somewhere. The CSA guidelines, nine guidelines, every single one of them is being violated by the workshop uh, uh, workshops in Los Angeles. Now, almost every workshop violates every one of the guidelines or most of the guidelines. Casting directors that do workshops are not allowed to do workshops. They're, they're, it's forbidden in our bylaws for them to do workshops where the casting uh, where the cat, where the workshops are not abiding by the casting guidelines. So, when they continue to do them, and there's no repercussions, there's no penalty, there's no, you know, they don't even get slapped on the wrist. I don't think anybody in the last six years since the workshops have been, and since we've had the workshop guidelines, nobody's ever been taken a task for it. Nobody's ever been penalized. I don't even think anybody's been called out. For, for violating the guidelines or facilitating the guideline violation. When I say violating the guidelines, I mean, for instance, the the guidelines say workshops may not provide you, casting directors may not take headshots. Almost everybody I talk to that does a workshop says, oh, they, they gave me their, I gave them their headshot, they took my headshot. So how do we stop that? We stop it by by telling the casting director, you can't go to that workshop anymore. And when we do that as an organization that's that's concerned about the way that our, uh, the, our the way that our community is being perceived, then we eliminate the possibility of us being involved with something that makes us look bad uh, to, to the benefit of the workshop, but to the detriment of the casting community. When I take a picture and resume, and it's a violation of the guidelines, then uh, I look bad. And so, what what I think the guidelines were meant to do was to to deal with the ethical breaches in the workshop uh, business, but because we all know why workshops exist, then it, it's, you know, there's an old saying, Upton Sinclair said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. Hmm. So you, you, have the, you have so much money, you, have, you already have a, a, a model that's been set up that's been adhered to for the last 30 years. Well, that's, I go, I read for a casting director, the casting director gives me minimal feedback, I give the casting director my picture and resume, and I, I go home. Hopefully I get a call from that casting director, I might, I might not. That's the model of the workshop. It hasn't changed. It's since the guidelines have come out, every single time we think that there's going to be some sort of an adjustment to the way that, that uh, the workshops uh, deal with, uh, with, you know, with the, with the, the law and the way the casting directors deal with the workshops, it all goes back to, to square one. Because there's no enforcement, because there's no penalty for the casting directors that violate the workshop guidelines. Uh, and the workshop guidelines, there have been two sets of guidelines. You know, uh, I served on the board of directors in 1996 when 
the, the issue came up of the guidelines and the fact that there were casting directors who were violating the guidelines 20 years ago. And Joe Rich, who was the t- head of the teaching committee, and I'm using teaching in, in air quotes, uh, said, I don't know what to do. I, you know, they're going out there, they're getting paid for watching showcases, they're, they're using the TV shows, you know, that they're, they're not supposed to use the name of Well, what are we going to do? I raised my hand and I said, we need to fire, uh, not fire, we need, to, we need to eject the casting directors, uh, you know, expel the casting directors that can't play by the rules. If they can't pay the fines, if they can't stop what they're doing, they need to go away. And somebody said, but, you know, we're, we would lose a lot of members and we're trying to increase our membership. And I said, we would lose the members that don't want to abide by the professional standards and ethics that this organization was set up for a dozen years ago. So, you know, the CSA was in 1984 is when it started, 83, 84. So, so I said, we need to get rid of those uh, casting directors who can't play by the rules and we'll have a smaller but more ethical, stronger organization. Uh, more professional organization that that wants an, an Academy Award that will work hard to get an Academy Award and will have no rocks in the road with these stupid freaking workshops. Somebody else raised their hand and said, well, why don't we just get rid of all the guidelines and then nobody will get in trouble? And I kind of looked at everybody in the room and there's like 12 people there and I said, are you serious? I said, why not just get rid of all the red lights in Los Angeles and nobody will get a ticket for, for you know running a stoplight? You know, it's, it was a silly, silly thing. But they voted on it and they removed every guideline in 1996 in, in the name of free trade. So why, why are they guidelines and not rules? I mean, gu- a guideline sounds kind of soft. It sounds like this is kind of what we recommend you do. Uh, well, then you just answered the question because <laughs> they're soft because they don't want to they don't want to infringe on the rights of their membership to make money, what, what they do, I've heard this over and over again. What a casting director does in their spare time is none of our business. Well, yeah, it kind of is. It kind of is if they're, if they're robbing banks and they're, and they're, and they're killing people. Uh, it also, you know, and of course, they're not robbing banks and killing people, but they're still breaking the law or they're violating the law or they're doing things you know, in a way that doesn't adhere to the prof- professional standards that I think the CSA was set up for. I think it's again, it's about the money. It's about everything has been so, uh, it's become such an entrenched part of Hollywood acting culture and casting director culture that it's really hard to shake it and break it. I think you really just need to destroy it. You need to raise it. You need to burn it to the ground and you need to see what else comes back from it. But casting director workshops, as they exist today, and I've said this before, and never as strongly as I, I, I'm saying now, though, is that they need to go away. They need to, the, the, the model of modern casting director workshops, which are nothing more than pay-to-play uh, venues, have to go away. You can't adjust them and make them more educational. You can't stop, because if you do that, then they're not going to be the same thing. You can call them casting classes. Do, do a three-week uh, uh, class like some of these people are doing now, where no actors show up because they don't want to have to go and, and see the same casting director three weeks in a row, you know, they and learn something. They want to read for a casting director. Actors know what they want. Casting directors know why they're getting paid. So if you, you, you can either have to completely change the model or you have to get rid of it. And, and I can't see how you can change the model uh, without it being a completely separate and different entity. So Billy, just, you've actually, oh, go ahead, Trev. Uh, I was just going to say, just to be clear, the the illegal part 
is that casting directors, because of the professional position that they hold, are taking money from actors. Because every, you know, it's been a long, long time since I went to a casting director workshop, but, you know, there's that classic thing where the person running the workshop stands up and says, now, just so you know, this is not a guarantee of a job or anything like that. This is all just for educational purposes. And everyone just kind of nods and and then it feels like it's sort of hunky-dory. So I I guess just to be super clear for our listeners, where where is the uh, violating the law part uh, coming in? Okay, I'm going right now to a statement from the State Labor Board about workshops and how they're what is illegal in workshops and why they were 12 i don't know if you know this but in 19 uh 2002 there were the big hearings in van nuys mm-hmm. and the workshops came and they tried to to um they tried to defend themselves and they tried to say we're you know we're education or we're whatever here's what thomas kerrigan uh in the law uh, in in addressing the legality said there currently exist a number of single session workshops. By the way, think about how this relates to what workshops are today. This is a dozen years ago, March, May 24th, 2002. <clears throat> uh, there are currently, or currently exist a number of single session workshops where a group of veteran or aspiring actors pay a fee, submit headshots and resumes, and perform cold readings of sides for an invited casting director or his assistant representing a producer with current casting needs for film and or television. As the agency authorized to interpret and uh, and enforce this statute, it is our position that these workshops are presumptively in violation of the provisions of Section 450 of the Labor Code, and this is so even when the casting director or assistant gives some incidental direction or suggestions or feedback to some or all of the participants during the session. Now, that's the way workshops still happen today. And so no matter what the law says, if they're still if they're still doing exactly the same thing, they're violating it. They're violating the law. So the legal part is about casting directors can't take a fee to watch actors do scenes even when there is uh, incidental direction or suggestion or feedback to some or all of the participants. That's what workshops are. The workshops tried to come up with the curriculum thing. The CSA said that all casting directors should have a correct curriculum and that they should be displayed prominently on the, the, the casting directors, uh, the wor- workshop websites. That's never happened. They say you have to be able to, you have to read the disclaimer and put a disclaimer in the email of all the workshops that it's not an employment they have opportunity and they're not taking home your pictures and resumes. That doesn't exist in a lot of the workshops. Uh, over and over and over again, the pieces of the law and pieces of the CSA guidelines and all the things that make them wrong on a number of levels. You see, the guidelines were just created to mirror the law, to help casting directors better abide by the law. And so when you give somebody a picture and resume, what it's assuming is that you're giving them a resume and you're also giving them money. That's That's paying for a job interview. So that's the illegal part. So the CSA said... Don't do that. You can't do that. But they continue to do it because the CSA wanted their members to not be in a position where they're inadvertently violating the law. But that doesn't sell well in workshops. I mean, it's like saying if I if I were a casting director and I said, OK, I'm doing a workshop, but nobody gets to get up and read or we're going to have two couples read. Not all 20 of you get to read. Two couples get to read and we're going to teach by example. The, there would be crickets in that room. No, no, they, it would be half empty. Or, or, or 
there'd be four or five people in there because nobody wants to come to a workshop where they don't get a chance to get up and perform. So all those things, the performance for a casting director, taking a fee, giving a headshot and a resume, all those things are 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 adjunct to the 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 the, the criminal nature of what happens in a workshop. Guys, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed part two of our chat with Billy DeMota and enjoyed that uh, additional context for what was kind of happening behind the scenes uh, and what continues to happen behind the scenes, apparently, uh, over at the Casting Society of America and so on and so forth. So as we mentioned earlier in the episode, again, not to beat a dead horse, but we do have um, a few interviews that we are sort of finalizing that will provide alternative viewpoints on this whole conversation. So we're excited, really, really excited to hear uh and in my personal case to kind of be convinced that um you know that these these workshops have uh enough merit to to stick around in some recognizable form uh, in the near future so uh, look forward to that as far as picks of the week go uh, i'll just jump in here first with mine it is an app that i've had a lot of fun um getting to know recently it's called todoist it's a to-do app, a task manager app, but basically a to-do list app, but it works brilliantly with the GTD productivity philosophy. And if you're listening to this and you're wondering what GTD is, it stands for Getting Things Done, GTD. It's a book by David Allen, and it is basically just a framework for how to handle all the different various inputs in our life and, and how to move through the, the noise and the craziness and the chaos of modern day life in an organized and systematic way such that we don't feel overwhelmed and we do actually give the important things in our lives the um, attention and time they deserve. And, and GTD is a practice. Uh, it's, not, it's not like the cleanest uh, thing in the world because when it comes to human behavior and adopting new behaviors, nothing is that clean. But I, I will say it, it has been a huge boon for my life and my productivity and my sanity, especially as it comes to you know all the hats that I wear, all the things I juggle, especially at this podcast. It takes up a massive amount of time. And if it weren't for GTD and now something like Todoist, uh, I think I would be a lot less happy uh, than I am. So check it out, todoist.com. Uh, it's a free app. And of course, as with everything uh, app these days, there's a premium version. And actually, if you're listening to this and you would like to try out the premium version of Todoist, just go to todoist.com and, and learn all about the additional features you can get. I have three premium codes to give away for uh, three months of premium uh, Todoist. So if you are one of the first three people to hear this episode and you message me personally, just find me on Twitter and shoot me a direct message or, or an app message. The first three people to contact me will get uh, my three premium codes. So there you go. little Easter egg planted in this episode for you. Uh, looking forward to offering that to people. I hope you guys uh, enjoy it as much as I have. I've just spent the last few weeks of my life just downloading my entire brain into this app and it's just been amazing to get it out of my head into a place where I know it can live and where I can tell it to come back to my attention when I need to see it and just forget about it the rest of the time. That's what the app is all about. Todoist.com. And without further ado, AJ's pick of the week. Hey, it's AJ again. My pick of the week this week is a blog slash business slash coffee shop 
Um, many of you are probably already familiar with this because it did kind of go viral uh, recently. Uh, but the uh, the sort of bulletproof coffee phenomenon, where people were putting butter in there, or yeah, uh, grass fed butter in their in their coffee. You may have seen this floating around uh, the Facebooks and the Twitters and the internets. Um, but it, the the reason that this exists is it was uh, actually created by this guy who is uh, very Tim Ferriss like in his obsession with science and body hacking and he just started a blog because he was really unhealthy and now he's in the best shape of his life and it's all based in science and research and this sort of movement or company if you will just was born out of that blog so it's another great example of something coming from somebody being passionate about something well, our uh, marketing and web director, Gadali Gubrik, actually now uh, works for the company, and so I've been given a new insight into it and got an, uh, an opportunity to actually go to the uh, Bulletproof Coffee Shop in Santa Monica and experience it myself for the first time and totally made me a believer. Food was great. Coffee was awesome. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited to kind of check out the blog I think I made the four-hour body my pick of the week uh, a long time ago. So obviously, Trevor, myself, Gadali, uh, Jasmine, we're all interested in this sort of body hacking, um, you know, science, research-based uh, health and wellness. And uh, here's another, you know, awesome example. So Bulletproof, uh, the company, the, the the website, the blog, you can check them out at Bulletproof.com, link on our website, and, you know, dive in, check it out, if you're, especially if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Um, I think uh, I think this will be right in uh, Trevor's uh, wheelhouse. You know, it is right in my wheelhouse uh, with uh, the obvious exception uh, and that bulletproof in my experience. And admittedly, I don't know a lot about this stuff. I know they've got like special MCT oil, which is I think they call it like brain brain jet fuel or something like that. Um, I, I do uh, have one bone to pick with it, and that is that uh, it's a little heavy on uh, animal products, and I try, I try to avoid animal products for a variety of reasons, and uh, Bulletproof seems to be, uh, you know, um, not of that same philosophy uh, much of the time. Not all the time, but much of the time, although, again, I'm admittedly ignorant, and uh, now that Gadali works there, I think I remember him telling me that actually there is uh, uh, many, many, many more aspects of, of Bulletproof that are, that are uh, vegan-friendly and vegetarian-friendly than perhaps the public is led to believe. So Bulletproof.com, looking forward to checking that out. And, and also, I've got a great recipe for vegan Bulletproof coffee that I'm going to put a link to on our website that I've been doing, uh, I don't know, maybe once a week, twice a week, especially on my fasting days. And it's awesome. And uh, no grass-fed butter required. So check it out. Uh, link to all of that on our website. So that is it for episode 233 of Inside Acting, short and sweet this week. Today's episode of Inside Acting was produced and co-hosted by me, Trevor Algada, and AJ Meyer. Jen Levin is our production coordinator. Gadali Gubrek is our marketing and web director. Deborah Smith is our community manager. Timothy Patrick Waterman is our director of public relations. Trevor Algott, that's me, edited and mixed today's episode and composed our theme and interview music. And the glorious, wonderful, happy fern limb designed our new logo. Check it out. You can sign up for our weekly email dispatch and listen to all of our episodes at, over at our website, InsideActing.net. And you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes. You name it, somewhere on the internet, we're probably around there. 
Go ahead and leave us a review uh, if you'd like. Um, if you want to support the show and you're thinking, maybe I'm not ready for the membership. Maybe I'm not ready to sort of support you guys financially. Um, but I do want to help out. Uh, leaving us a review on iTunes would be really, really great. If you have positive things to say about the show and you'd like the world to know, iTunes is a great place to put those positive things. It's like put a little tip in our tip jar and it helps other people find the show too. Big thanks to our sponsors, Rehearsal Pro and VO2GoGo.com. And big thanks to you, our listeners. If you do love this show and you're ready to commit to it uh, a little bit more fully and maximize its value in your life and career, uh, sign up as a member and get cool perks like access to our membership message board, cool freebies, invites to exclusive member meetups, and more. Just visit InsideActing.net and click on the membership tab. And then that does it for episode 233 of Inside Acting. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Oh, 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 o